All right, well, good morning again. Good to see everyone. Well, today we are wrapping up our series in Genesis, and we're just pressing the pause button until resuming back up again next fall. And I hope that you've been blessed and challenged and really inspired during the series. I know I've been really blessed going through it. About a couple weeks ago, I went to go pick up my daughters from school, and they jumped in the car, and, and I just casually asked them, like I always do, like, how, how was school? How was your day? And, and they kind of were visibly distraught, and they're like, it was terrible. It was terrible. It was a waste of time. We didn't learn anything. Um, I think it's pointless. It's, it's pointless if we even go this week. Right? And just concerned, I thought, what, what, what happened? Like, what, what was wrong? And they kind of paused, and they said, there was no Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi was completely shut down, and I think it might have been the entire district, and they said, I think it's going to be out the entire week. Like, we, we couldn't do anything. And I'm just like, oh, okay. And you know, I was like, back in our day, <laughs> we used to walk through the snow, right? Like, we used a thing called pencil and, and paper, right? And, and come to find out, they're pretty dependent on technology these days in school and in the classrooms, uh, so they were limited, but... You know, that, that struggle that they, they had to endure of being in school without Wi-Fi, as hard as it may have been, it's kind of evidence of a kind of privilege, right? a kind of blessing over their life. I remember last year when we were at a different school, a private school, Orangewood Academy, um, Every day for lunch, uh, the kids would pack, or Amber would pack leftovers for them, or sometimes she would cook up some stuff in the morning, send them off to school, and during the day, they would go use a couple of the classrooms or the kitchen to, to microwave and, and heat up their food. Uh, at some point during the year, the, the school decided, for whatever reasons, when the kids were congregating or too many microwaves were going on at one time, that uh, the kids were no longer allowed to use the microwave ovens. And the kids were shocked visibly upset. I wasn't there, but what I heard was that, you know, the kids threatened to protest, revolt, complain, right, as to say, like, how could we eat if we can't microwave our food? And at some point, I guess, students were complaining to the principal, and the principal responded in jest, and he's a great guy, but he responded kind of in jest, like, you guys ever heard of a sandwich? (laughs) And the kids were appalled, like, the audacity to suggest that we eat a sandwich uh, for lunch, right? And in that struggle, right, not being able to eat warm food at lunch, as hard as it may have been, right, is kind of an evidence, a reflection of kind of privilege, a kind of blessing over their life. Well, this morning as we conclude our time in Genesis for now, uh, what we're going to see is as disciples of Jesus, the, the struggle that we experience of, of striving to follow Jesus in light of the sin and brokenness in this world, in light of the temptations, as hard as it may be, is actually evidence of God's blessing and his favor over our life. So we're going to pick up... Um, in uh, Genesis 3, 14 to 15, just to, to, to recap a bit, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, right, we've seen God's desire and his heart for us in the creation account. That God not only spoke creation into existence, but that he established order and beauty. That he created a dwelling place where he could rest amongst his people where his people could thrive and flourish under his presence and under his provision, his rule, his reign, that he would create a sacred space where he would bless his people and his people would bless him and bless one another for as long as they wanted. Yet despite absolute wonder and perfection, humanity rebels against God. They choose to opt out of the relationship, choose to pursue life apart from him, And there are consequences, which we saw last week. And the scene is is quite tragic. It's it's bleak. Yet amidst the tragedy, what we see is that there is a glimmer of hope. And we see this hope in God's 
curse, his, his words to, to the serpent. And that's what we're going to see in verses 14 to 15 this morning. Uh, verse 14, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now up to this point, the identity of the serpent has yet to, to be revealed. Right? It's not until later on in Scripture that the biblical writers would identify the serpent as being Satan, right? as the devil, as the, the enemy. But what's clear at this point is that the serpent is a being who stands in opposition to God. This is a being who is working to undermine and sabotage everything that God is, is doing. And at this point in the narrative, everything seems to point towards his success. But immediately in verse 14, after the fall, after this deception, God reasserts his authority. Right? He asserts his authority over all of creation, including Satan, his sovereignty. He reminds them that he's still in control. He's still sovereign. He acknowledges Satan's role in this deception, the part that he played in deceiving Adam and Eve. And he says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, God is not addressing like this species called snakes. Right? He's not addressing all you know, garden snakes and rattlesnakes and pythons and cobras, but he's addressing Satan. And thus the implication here is not that snakes used to have arms and legs and walk around and, and this is why. They're on their belly. But he's addressing Satan, he's addressing the devil, and he is communicating that Satan's ultimate destiny is defeat. It is humiliation. It is judgment. He says, I will put enmity or hostility, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. I mean, this is an interesting statement in light of the fact that humanity just chose to reject God. They just chose to switch teams, to join Satan's team, to do life his way, yet God says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, this word offspring, the literal translation is seed, your seed, her seed, and it can refer to an individual but it can also refer to a group, right? So in Genesis 26, God tells Jacob, your seed will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And God says, I will put hostility between you, the serpent, the woman, your offspring, her offspring. Now, once again, God is not addressing our relationship with snakes, right? That we will have hostility towards snakes. But he's talking to Satan. That there will be enmity, hostility between humanity and between Satan. And immediately, right from the get-go, we see the grace of God in all of this. Despite humanity's rebellion against God, despite turning their backs on him, rejecting him, he says, this is what I will do. I will not give up on my plans and my purposes. I will not forfeit my desires for people, and my desire to be with them, my desire to, to bless them. So what God communicates is that he is going to raise up a people who will stand in opposition to the enemy. He will raise up a people who will be faithful to him. Now, if you think about Satan's deceit, what Satan represents, right? Satan convinced humanity that life was better without God. That true human flourishing was not life under God, it was freedom from God. He convinced them that God was not fully good, that he was withholding all that was truly good, and that life would be so much better without him. So when God says, I'm going to raise up a people who will stand in opposition to the enemy, what he's saying is that he's going to raise up a people who will ultimately be faithful to God, 
who will believe that life is best with God, that God is good, that he's powerful, that he's able, that everything he offers is for our good, and that true human flourishing is life with him, to fully enjoy his presence, his provision, his rule, his reign. And then in the second part of verse 15, he says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, there's a lot of debate as to who this is referring to. There's a lot of scholars who identify this as a clear reference to to Jesus. He will crush your head. In this word, he will crush you, seems to communicate a, a blow that is a little more devastating, a little more fatal than, than a strike, right? I think of Ivan Drago. I will crush you, right? But what's interesting here is that the, the word that's translated as crush is actually the, the exact same word that's translated as strike. And thus, in uh, some more literal translations, such as the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Bible, they translate it as, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, right? Which seems to kind of level the playing field a a little bit more. Now, you think about this idea of striking the head and striking the heel, like if, you know, if a human being and a snake were going at it using the serpent imagery, and, you know, don't try this at home. But, you know, the, the head of a snake would be its most vulnerable spot for the snake, and the heel of a human would be its most vulnerable spot for the human. And both a strike to the head and a snake bite to the heel can be pretty devastating can be pretty fatal. So it's hard to say that whether the initial audience in hearing this, the the Jews in the wilderness, whether they would have heard this statement and whether they would have immediately thought of a Messiah or a Savior. But what would be clear to them is that this is a battle, a struggle that God ultimately wins. Right? This is a curse that he is declaring upon Satan. He is declaring that Satan's ultimate destiny is defeat and humiliation, which means this is a battle that God ultimately wins. In Romans 16 to 20, Paul alludes to this. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul clearly sees that this is a battle that God will ultimately win, but in the meantime, it's a struggle. It's a battle. It is ongoing and continuous between Satan and in between God's people. So the question at this point in the narrative is who is God referring to? Who are the people that God will raise up who will stand in opposition to the enemy, who will be faithful to him? Uh, When I was in junior high, I had the privilege of making the La Mirada Little League all-star baseball team. And uh, we were a really good team, and we were one win away from going to the Little League World Series. Not the Williamsport version, it would have been Michigan because we were a year older. And we were good. But I didn't get to play a lot. So after the season, one win away, we have our end-of-the-year banquet, and during the banquet we have our trophies all lined up, and the coach goes through, trophy reads the name, and one by one describes the player, right? Before saying the name, and we're all kind of like guessing who he's referring to. So we pick up the trophy and be like, this, this person is, was the backbone of our defense. You know, like, he was our catcher, our heart and soul. And you know, all of us, kind of, we're looking, we're like, it's Kurt. He's talking about Kurt. He's like, Kurt. Picks up the next trophy and he's like, this is best player of our team, MVP, pitcher, hitter, outfielder. And we all look, we're like, he's talking about Jack. You know, he's like, it's Jack. One by one, he goes through, and there's, you know, just a few of us sitting there, and picks up a trophy, he looks, and he says, this person gets good grades in school. <laughs> and everyone's like, Eric. <laughs> yeah. See, for the, the first, for the, the Jewish audience in the wilderness, right, for the Israelites who are hearing the creation account, is hearing God's promise of raising up a people, having just been rescued and delivered from the greatest military on the planet to have ever existed. It would have been hard for them to to hear this and to not think. He's 
He's talking about us. God is clearly talking about us. Right? It was to their forefather Abraham that God would say, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Right? God tells the Israelites specifically through Moses, Exodus 29, 45 to 46, he says, then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Right? They were the ones that God chose to bless. They were the ones that he had raised up. They were the ones that he had rescued. They were the ones that he chose to dwell with, to bless them with his presence, with his provisions, and to to, to believe that, that God was referring to them in the very beginning had to be so life giving, so uplifting, so inspiring. Sure, it wouldn't be easy. It would be a struggle in light of the consequences of sin, in light of this enemy who stood in opposition to them. But they could have hope in knowing that it wasn't about their strength, it wasn't about their ability, but it was about who God was. It was about what He had promised and what He was doing. The question for them was would they want? that kind of relationship with God? Would they believe that God was truly good, that he was powerful and able, that everything he offered was for their good and for their benefit, that life was best with God, to live under his rule, his reign, to live according to his design, to be fully dependent on his guidance and his direction. And God says, if, if so, then, then here's how to experience what I have to offer. Deuteronomy 28, 1-2, God says to the Israelites, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. What God tells Israel, I am inviting you to experience the kind of relationship that I've wanted with my people from the very beginning. Here's how to experience it. Here's how to receive my presence, my provisions, my rule, my reign. Do what I say. Obey my commands. Follow my instructions. He's not saying, do these things to make me happy, then I'll bless you. He's saying, Do these things to experience my presence, to experience my provisions. Uh, We have a family friend who uh, recently graduated from school, college, uh, finished playing college basketball, and and moved back home. And in addition to to working on the side, she's coaching and offering training and and skills clinics. And uh, she reached out to us and said, hey, if Carly and Kate ever want, you know, to, to get some extra training in, if they, you know, come on out. Be happy to, to work with them. And she has a lot to offer, skill, expertise, experience, and it would be greatly beneficial for our girls, and we plan on getting them out there at some point. Now, if our girls were to go out to one of her trainings, the way they will be able to receive all that she has to offer is by doing what she tells them to do, right? To doing whatever drills she puts them through to making whatever changes, modifications, tweaks that she suggests them to do. It wouldn't be easy. It would be hard. It would be challenging. It may not come natural. But they would do as she says, not to make her happy, not out of fear to disappoint her, but to receive what she has to offer. You see, it it would have been so easy for, for Israel to, to look at others, to, to look in the past, and to see how kind of obvious and straightforward and, and simple this is. Right? For them to look at Adam and Eve and just be like, you only had one job. Right? Like, it, you had it. 
All you had to do was just enjoy God's presence, go on hikes, take care of a perfect garden, make babies, hang out with harmless, warm, fuzzy animals, indulge from any tree in the garden, just, just, just not one, right? And you couldn't do it. It would have been easy for them to, to look at Pharaoh, someone like Pharaoh, and be like, Pharaoh, if you would have just listened to God the ninth time, right? like things could have turned out so much, much, much different. You know, they could have thought and looked, you know, thought about the golden calfers of the group. You know, if the golden calfers, like, what were they thinking? After all that God had done for us to, to make a golden calf and to worship it. And then, you know, when Moses came back, like, they should have just apologized. It, it would have been so easy for Israel to, to look at others and to see how God's invitation was so clear, so blatant, so obvious But the question that each of them had to ask themselves is, will I trust God today? Will I obey him today? In light of the circumstances I face, in light of all of the challenges, in light of all of the beliefs, in all of, all of the temptations, in light of all that this world has to offer, is following God and trusting God the best thing for my life. And what we see throughout scriptures that Israel struggled with this. Said one thing with their mouths, demonstrated another thing with their choices and with their decisions. So we see in scripture is that this rebellion continues. Yet God does not give up. God does not forfeit or abandon his plans and his desires for you, for me. God remains true to his promises. He comes to earth in the person of Jesus, sends his son to, to live amongst us. His name, Emmanuel, God with us, which we're going to celebrate all next month. And Jesus lives a perfect, sinless life. He demonstrates life to the fullest. He is the perfect image of the invisible God lives according to the Father's design, fully dependent, intimate with the Father. Jesus lives the life that, that we were created to live. And he does this so that he can stand on our behalf. So that on the cross he could pay for our sins. He can endure God's justice, the punishment, the wrath that we deserve. And that in his resurrection he can give us the credit for the perfect life he lived, he can give us the credit for his righteousness. That it's on the cross that Jesus pays for our sin and our shame. Right, The sin that separates us from God, the shame that forces us to hide from God and hide from one, each other, one another, Jesus endures on our behalf so that we would no longer have to. And this is all God, all grace. Right? It's what he does for us, despite our sin, despite our rebellion. It's nothing that we do to earn this, to merit it, to deserve this. It's all God. And he does this so that he can have what he's always wanted from the very beginning, a relationship with you, a relationship with me, a relationship with his most valuable and precious creation. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 29, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Right? God invites us into a relationship where we get to experience the kind of life that he designed us to live where we can thrive and flourish, fully enjoying his presence, his provision, his rule, his reign. But the question remains the same. Do we want this kind of relationship? And the gospel is if we do, if we genuinely, sincerely want this kind of relationship with him, then God 
sends the Holy Spirit. Because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, God sends the Spirit to dwell within us. And through the Spirit, we get to experience God's presence. We get to experience His provisions, His rule, His reign. And Jesus says in John 14 to 15, He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And what Jesus implies is that if we genuinely want a relationship with him, if we genuinely trust him and love him, then we're going to want to get to know him. We're going to want to know what he's like. We're going to want to know all the things that he's said, all the things that he's, he's done. We're going to want to know what moves his heart, what offends him. We're going to want to know what he has to say about our lives. And we're going to do whatever we can to do what he asks us to do. Jesus is not saying that it's our works that brings us salvation. But it's in his commands, it's in his instructions that we experience his presence. He's not saying that we need to be perfect or that we need to be sinless, but Jesus has some things to say on how to address and respond to the sins in our lives. In the same way for the Israelites, I think it's easy for us to to kind of look at others and to see kind of how clear and straightforward this is. Right? We can look at Israel and be like, you just had to trust God. You just had to follow the pillar of cloud in the day and pillar of fire at night like he was with you. You saw what he did in Egypt. You just had, oh, you just had to obey him, trust him. We can look back at first century Jews. You had Jesus. You saw the miracles. You heard his teachings. You just had to follow him. You just had to trust him. You saw the the resurrected body. You just had to trust him. I think it's easy for us to, to maybe look at others in our world. And just think like, you know, if they just turned to God, their lives would be so much better. If they just repented of of that sin, if they just knew God's heart when it comes to those people, oh, so obvious. But the question we, we need to ask ourselves is, do I want a relationship with Jesus today? Will I seek to obey him today? Will I trust him? Will I seek his presence? Will I apply his word? Will I invite him to speak? Will I prioritize his plans, his purposes? Will I allow him to lead my life, my choices, my decisions? Now, Scripture tells us that one day, one day it's going to be perfect. As chaotic and as bleak as things may seem today in our world, the brokenness we see all around us, the brokenness we experience within us, one day it's going to be perfect. One day there's going to be no more sin, no more pain, no more hurt, no more grief, no more sadness, no more sorrow. One day everything will be redeemed. Everything will be reconciled. Everything will be restored. It will be perfect and glorious. A couple weeks ago, uh, we celebrated the lives of Paul and Kay Ferruccio, longtime members here at this church. And and during their their celebration of life service, and I was in the back, and I was just running the PowerPoint uh, during worship. And we were singing the hymn, How Great Thou Art. And for no reason, it just kind of dawned on me how powerful and profound it was that we could worship God at a funeral. That amidst the grief and amidst the sadness and amidst the loss, we could praise God and declare His greatness because of the certainty, because of the assurance because of the absolute confidence that we have, this deep-rooted belief that there is nothing 
better in this life than to be in the presence of God. To live is Christ, to die is, is gain. And because we believe that life with God is better than anything we could experience in this world that this world has to offer, that his presence is worth pursuing now. That true flourishing, that true thriving is to enjoy his presence, to enjoy his provision, to enjoy his rule, his reign. One day it's going to be perfect. Yet for this short, brief, temporary period, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a battle. It's going to be hard. There is the consequences of sin and brokenness all around us, within us. And there is an enemy, the devil, who is working 24-7 to deceive us, destroy us, to lead us astray. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And every day we, we see and we experience and we feel that the consequences of sin and the work of the enemy. Or maybe it's in our own weaknesses, our own struggles, our own imperfections, that the hurt, the cost that we see because of, of our imperfections. Every day we see the temptations, we feel the temptations. The enemy, this world tempting us to believe that life is better without God. Or it's God plus something else. Every day we experience the hardships, the pain, the hurt, the frustration because of sin, because of brokenness. Yet the fact that we are here, the fact that we actually struggle to be faithful, that we struggle to obey, it is evidence of God's blessing and his favor upon our life. That it is proof that God is doing exactly what he said he would do in the very beginning. That in the face of sin, in the face of this enemy, God would raise up a people who will be faithful to him, who will stand in opposition to the enemy. 1 Peter 1, 3-7. Says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Right here, Peter is saying one day it's going to be perfect. And we have this hope and this inheritance that waits for us in heaven with God, but until then, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. But one, it's evidence of our desire to be faithful to God. And it's evidence of God's grace and His mercy and His favor upon our life. What we've seen over the past several weeks is that from the very beginning, God desired a relationship with us. And what we see throughout Scripture is God has gone to great lengths to make that kind of relationship available to anyone and to everyone who sincerely and genuinely want it. And every day, we have the opportunity to experience that relationship, to enjoy His presence, to enjoy His provision his rule, 
his reign, his rest. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be a struggle. But we can have hope. We can have confidence in knowing that it's not about our strength. It's not about our abilities, but it's about who God is. It's about what he's always wanted from the beginning. It's about what he has promised, what he has declared, and what he is bringing true in our life and in the lives around us. And because of that, we can respond with faith and hope. Will you pray with me? You died in my place, so oh, my soul will live. Oh, to be like you, give all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside.
the privilege of being your people. And God, we want to recognize the depth of the grace, the weight of the cost that you paid uh, so that could be possible, so that this vision that you had for our world, for our lives could be made possible for, through your son, through his death, through his resurrection. And God, what a blessing it is that we get to stand on this side of the cross and live the life and have the opportunity to experience the life that you always wanted for your people. And so, God, we pray that we would turn to you, that we would lean into this blessing, that we would recognize your goodness and your grace in Jesus and in the chance that we have every day to know you, to experience you, and, and to do life with you, under you, and for you. So, God, we pray uh, that as we close your time, uh, close this time, that we would worship, that we would as always, have your grace and your goodness on our hearts and on our lips. And as a body that we would celebrate you and uh, just who you are. So we love you. We praise you. We give you this time to have Jesus. name, Amen. All right, let's all stand together as we close our time. People come together. Strangers, neighbors, our blood is one. Children of generations, of every nation, of kingdom come. Don't let your heart be troubled. Hold your head up, I don't fear no evil. Fix your eyes on this one truth. God is madly in love with you. So take courage, hold on, be strong. Remember where our help comes from. Thank you. 
everything with breath repeat the sound all the children clean and spirit hearts good grace good god team. Thank all of you for blessing us with your presence this morning. Let's uh, receive the Lord's blessing. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May the Lord be with you. Have a great week, everyone. God. Oh.